For the last several months, we have been in a large series, a big series on the book of Acts. And we've divided it up, and we're doing it for a year. We've divided it up into like sub-series, these little mini-series throughout. And our first one we titled Origins. Because what we wanted to do was explore what are these early stories of the church and how did it galvanize them? What did it mean for them? How did it send them out? And what did it look like? And, and we found that, that there's a few things. One, that they were all in one accord, it says throughout Acts, that they were rushing along together in unison, heading towards something. We found that the Holy Spirit is something powerful and wild, something that you can't necessarily always contain. Matter of fact, the early Celts would call the Holy Spirit the wild goose because they believed that the goose would get loose. It might chase you down and attack you, or it might send you on a wild chase after something bigger than yourself. We saw that, that, that it took a lot of courage to follow the Spirit into hard areas. So we learned that the early church dealt with a lot of hard things, and this was their origin stories. We then started a series, a sub-series called Margins. And within this series, we saw that there were lots of different people that you would probably never expect at, in the first century to come to Jesus. Um, we saw a eunuch. Um, we saw people who were unclean. We saw people who were clean and unclean having to wrestle together and think through what would it mean to live in this space, in this world, in this faith together, and that these people on the margins were meant to be included, not always outsiders. And this morning, we start a new series, and I'll be honest with you, it's a made-up word, and it just hit me sometime a few months ago, and we decided to go with it because I'm in charge of defining the series. So we called it God Speak, and, and here's why, because for the next Several chapters. Matter of fact, it's going to be 18 weeks. And because nobody wants to do anything for 18 weeks in a row, we're going to divide it up. We're going to do it for nine weeks, take a break during Lent, and then pick it up again. But we see that there are all these places, places, cities, towns, countries, that Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas will take these missionary journeys to. And we've all, if you grew up in church, you've heard about You've heard about Paul's missionary journeys. We're going to talk about that and how that in each one of these cities, there's a need to learn how to talk about God from scratch to convey the reality of who Jesus is. Because these were places that weren't Jewish. These were places that didn't have the same context that these early followers did coming out of Palestine, Israel. And that there's a need today for us to learn how to get beyond these walls and the ways that we talk about God and learn to talk about God in ways that can be contextualized to people who maybe are disassociated, disenfranchised, and want nothing to do with the stuff that you think is so important in these rooms. It's a really important thing that we learn this. Um, I was trying to think of a few examples to help that, that maybe can kind of get us there. Um, how many of you are, are, are Mac enthusiasts? You ride or die with Mac. How many of you? Raise your hand. Come on. Come on, do this. Do this with me. Okay. A lot of you, okay? And there's more of you. You're not owning it. And how many of you are Android fans? 
Yes, two hands. You see, they do two hands, and they, they wave, like, here I am, here I am. I figured this out. Okay, so here's how this works, right? Mac is a closed system, right? And what that means is, is that when you live kind of a Mac world, it only is going to work well if you use Mac stuff. And so you have to keep speaking the Mac language for Mac to work. If you try to bring anything else outside of Mac, working with it, Mac don't get it, all right? Mac don't like it. Mac want to get away from it, all right? Whoever Mac is, this is what Mac does. And in this Android world, it's this like open system. You have to learn how to communicate and talk about these different apps and programs, and you have to be savvy enough to navigate within that, all right? So for all you Android people, I just gave you a high five. Look how kind of open look at you. You guys are really into it. Man, there's some pride in this room. Anyway, so there's a closed system, there's an open system. Now, I think a lot of times we have a very closed system within the church. It only works if you step into this space. But that's not the book of Acts. The book of Acts is always finding new, creative, refreshing ways to express this God that came to be understood within these lowlands of Israel, but then had to be expanded into these highways of Rome. Another example would be how as the church was moving into different parts of the world, we have a guy named St. Patrick, and he set sail to this island of barbarians. They were called Celts. The Celtic people of Ireland, um, they were really uh, run by the Druids. Those are the ones who really kind of had the, the, the ear of the people. And these Druids believed that things like a three-leaf clover could communicate the power of three. And so here's what St. Patrick did. The stories go that he, would, he went to Ireland. And he found, what's the thing that people are connected to? And how do I talk about that in new ways to help them realize the Christ who has always been here, ever present, and here to meet them where they are? So he took a three-leaf clover, and he talked about the Trinity, right? Talked about the Trinity. Another story that I love um, when I was in college um, I unfortunately uh, decided to major in evangelism, okay? That is the truth. That really happened. And then I thought, well, to help myself out, I'll emphasize it in missions. And this is to say this first. For any of you um, who ever feel like that your undergrad really matters, it doesn't because look at me, all right? Here I am. I overcame that bad decision, um, in college. All that to say, a very influential person, a, a professor, Dr. Smith, I remember him telling me this story, and it's pretty common, about missionaries who went to New Guinea years ago to, to minister to the people there. And as they were trying to find ways to talk about Scripture and then interpret Scripture in their language, they found that the people didn't really relate well to the idea of a lamb. A lamb. And a lamb's pretty important in Scripture, in case you didn't know. Like we have in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, when John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. So when translators got to this point, they're like, people don't care about lambs. What do they care about? Pigs. That's what people think is really important are pigs, all right? It's like they were from Memphis. Pigs, yes. Pigs matter. And so what they did is they translated it into this, behold the swine of God who takes away the sin of the world. They were finding new and creative ways to talk about God, to God speak in places where it 
needed to be an open way, a thoughtful way, a contextualized way. And I think for the next several weeks, us understanding that will be vitally important because we can't just get people to see it our way. We can't just be like, well, unless you see it within my closed system, you're only like going to be able to know Jesus. Nope. At least that's not how it's worked in church history. So that said, let's dive in to this passage and just kind of see where it takes us and see what Saul, Paul, I'll call him Paul, and Barnabas and others are, are trying to do. So let's start at verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menea, which, by the way, were you not impressed of all the strange names and cities I had to pronounce? If there's nothing else this morning, I'm proud of myself of that. I may bomb this morning, but I didn't bomb that. All right. Who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. A few things of why this is important, I think. One, Barnabas and Saul had spent a year in Antioch. They had planted a church, and they were now discipling this church. And from that, there were leaders stepping up, teachers, people giving, given, and then giving influence to other people around them. And what I find interesting is this. Like, why mention the names of all these different people? I, I think it's because of the diversity. I think because of the diversity. Now, let's just consider this. Barnabas is from Cyprus. Some people believe that Barnabas could have been black, a person of color at that time. You have Paul, who's a Pharisee, Simeon, who is a black African Gentile, Lucius, who is a North African Gentile, and check this out, Menaean. This guy is a childhood friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And if you don't know who Herod the Tetrarch is, he is the son of Herod the Great, who massacred all the children to and under when Jesus was born. So that was his son. And Menaean grew up with this guy. They were childhood friends. And so you got this guy, Menaean, who's a part of like leadership at this church in Antioch, and all of these people together are discerning the voice of the Lord of what they need to do next. The very first church we have is a church of diversity, a church that says plurality of backgrounds and color, ethnicity, of ways you're hardwired, all those things matter, that you actually can't discern the voice of the Lord until you have that. How poor are we as a church when we do not have plurality of voices? People shaping from the top down, what does it mean to listen to the voice of the Lord? So I think that's really important to see on the front end. And then verse 5, it says, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and John was with them as a helper. This line, it says, they proclaimed the word of God. We're going to put it up on the screen for you. The word proclaim in Greek is kata agalo. It's these two words brought together. This would be very common in Greek. And, and the, the, the first word is to kind of 
really emphasize and get down to the point of what you need to say. And agalo is the word angel we get in Greek. It means messenger. And when you bring these two together, it says something along these lines, to decisively declare something in a clear way. To decisively declare something in a clear way. And this word, proclaim, is used throughout the New Testament and is used more in Acts than anywhere else. This is the common word used when they would go to a new city, a new area, a new country, that they would proclaim that they wanted to decisively declare something in a clear way. And I want us to kind of keep that as the background of all this stuff we're talking about, because unless it gets clear, it's not helpful, much less does it have the potential for transform, transformative like power. So they are going about this island proclaiming, trying to get clear on who this Jesus really is, to contextualize this Jesus in a way that people can understand him and what it is he has to offer. And we see in verse 6, they traveled to the whole island until they came to Paphos, and there they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. First, I want to show a map because it says they're traveling through this island. And we, we get an idea of, of Paul and Barnabas' journey here that they start in Antioch and they try to move through Cyprus. Eventually, we're going to get all the way back up to another city in Antioch and then Galatia and other places. And Barnabas is from Cyprus. So he's like, let's start at my, like, my hometown. Let's start where I grew up. I can kind of show you around. So Barnabas is kind of leading this first leg of the journey, and he's like, he knows where to go. He knows the hot spots, right? And he knows who's got the best Yelp reviews. I mean, all those things Barnabas gets, and he's taking them through. And he realizes, though, that their journey has to end at the other side of the island, because that's where the power is. Because Paphos is, is kind of this capital of Cyprus. Matter of fact, it is such an important city um, this is where the goddess Aphrodite, this is where her home is. This is her home. Her main temple would have been there. And she's a goddess of fertility. She's a goddess of power. Um, it was a very sexualized culture. Um, it was also a culture very intent on, um, on births. So there was almost a sacredness to getting pregnant um, there's all kind of things happening at this part of the island. And so they're stepping into, like, all of that. And they meet this character, meet this character named, uh, we'll find out that his name is Elimus, but he goes by Barjona. And it says that he's a sorcerer. Now, here's really what this word sorcerer trans translates into, and it's a lot of fun. Wizard. He's a wizard. All right? Like, Gandalf is real, all right? And it, you have to remember, though, like Gandalfs, I mean, not Gandalfs, wizards, all the Gandalfs in the world. <laughs> wizards were thought as a mix of several things. They were healers, 
they were wise men, they were intellects, um, and they were magicians. We can't just think in the term of just a magician, like they pull off a nice little card trick at a kid's party and boom. Like, no, these people held power. They were considered like the right hand of whoever had to make the decisions. You wanted a wizard nearby. How about this? Dumbledore, all right? Dumbledore. How many of us wish we had a Dumbledore in our lives? Yes, you do. Don't lie. I wish I had a, I want him as our grandfather. Like, I would never mess up in life if I had Dumbledore. So he has a Dumbledore. We all want a Dumbledore. And Dumbledore, here's the thing. Don't, we, we want to think of it like, and here's evil, here's evil, uh, Linus. No, no, like, what do you think of Dumbledore? You love Dumbledore. You want Dumbledore around. So we had this person, Elimus, who's a Dumbledore, a wizard, and he calls himself son of Jesus. Oh, you see, there's the problem. Son of Jesus, bar, bar Jesus. Well, wait a second. Before we try to cast all this negativity on him, he's Jewish. He obviously knows of a movement, a powerful something, movement happening in modern-day Palestine, Israel. He knows that there was a wizard over there named Jesus, a wizard who was brilliant, a wizard who was a healer, a wizard who seemed to pull off some magic tricks along the way. And so he's just trying to like claim, like, I'm in on that. Like, that was a great wizard. I want to be a great wizard as well. You've never thought of Jesus as a wizard, but maybe that's what like this guy thought of Jesus that he wanted to be someone like, he wanted to be a person like that. We don't have to think of him as just like the spawn of Satan. Like he actually maybe was trying to bring something of help and wisdom and leadership to the proconsul. And so we had this character though that seems to get all the ideas and contours of Jesus, but he still is missing out on the reality of who Jesus is. And we see here, it says that Sergius Paulus, an intellect man, wanted to hear the word of God. A man of intellect, it literally means that he was mentally put together. He was really, a, he was really interested in not just information, but all the capacities of the mind and how it comes together. A really thoughtful person. And it said that he wanted to hear Literally, it means he craved something. So no matter, what was, no matter what Elias was giving him, he wanted more than that because he knew there were holes. You just need more than a Dumbledore. I'm sorry to say. So does Harry. So does you. We all need more than that. And he's wanting to hear this message because there's something powerful and a way that they're communicating clearly this message of Jesus that he was more than just a wizard out in Israel, out in Palestine. But this person offered something transformative. And Paul and Barnabas' message appealed, the gospel they preached appealed to the mind and senses of the proconsul. And the proconsul was someone who was um, sent from the government, the council in Rome, to be an overseer of land of an area. So this person has a lot of power, a lot of shaping to culture. He's like a really powerful governor. The gospel is meant to appeal to the whole person. I want to pause and consider that. 
The gospel we preach is meant to appeal to a whole person. It's not just meant to appeal to, appeal to a, in a forensic nature, like just information-wise, this is what happened, data, 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 cross, data, 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 resurrection. If our gospel that we give people is not something that appeals to the whole intellect, the whole mind of a person, what we're offering is something that is devoid of true transformative power. Tim Keller, I, I like the way he breaks this down. He says, to reach people with the gospel, we must challenge the cultural's story at points of confrontation and finally retell the culture's story, as it were, revealing how its deepest aspirations for good can be fulfilled only in Christ. We have to, like St. Patrick or like the missionaries in New Guinea, understand what's happening in the world around us. Think about it. Reason with it. Engage it. Not hold off from it. Not just have information about it, but to truly understand all the nooks and crannies that this culture we are in has to offer. And then in turn, be willing to even point out and critique the culture that we're in, that we're a part of, critique it, and show that it can never fully give the thing that culture is looking for. That the Christ, which is in all and everywhere, must be seen and pointed to just like in a three-leaf clover to show that this thing you really want only can be found in Jesus. But that can't happen unless we know a culture, engage a culture. Many times, we want to sit in rooms like this and just critique culture. And people don't want to listen to that. They first want to know if you're a part of us as a human race. They first want to know, do you just identify as a human in your weakness and frailty and in your desires and longings, in your brokenness, and all those things? Then we can have a conversation. And so we see the importance here. And this is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. But Elimus sees something. He sees that power is slowly being taken from him because he no longer gets to be the one to wield it into the ear of the proconsul. And he gets upset. See, Elimus, it says that he opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from faith. Tried to turn the proconsul from faith. See, again, in verse 10, it goes, you are a child, Paul sees this, and he says, you are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. This last line, will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Will you never stop perverting this thing, distorting this thing? In other words, it's important for us to look at. Diastrapho. It means to distort something from the right path. To distort something from the right path. I like how it says it in ESV. It's very vivid. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Will you stop distorting, making unclear, getting in the way of God in this moment? You're getting in the way of of God being contextualized. This is what he's saying to him. 
And here's a person, again, if he's calling himself Bar-Jesus, a son of Jesus, he, in a sense, from a distance, is trying to be within the Jesus movement because this great person he's seen, and yet he doesn't get it. This is someone who associates himself with the thought of Jesus, the power of Jesus, but not the ways of Jesus, the neediness of Jesus, the love of Jesus, because the power of Jesus is not in his conquering, but in his death. The power in Christ for us isn't how many times we get it wrong, but it's how many times, I mean, I mean how many times we get it right, it's how many times we get it wrong and own it. That's where the power lies. It's not in having this incredible defense of apologetical intellect of how someone must fall to their knees every time you give this great espousing of the gospel. But your life becomes the platform of the gospel to go, in my weakness, he is made strong. And Bar-Jesus, Elimus, is missing out on this. It's because of that, he's getting in the way of the straight paths of the Lord. There was something in his wisdom, his power, his life that was missing. He was losing influence over the proconsul, Sergius. Now, we could stop here, and we could talk about how there are powers getting in the way of the gospel being spread. That'd be an easy thing to do. We could stop here and talk about crooked things, crooked people, getting in the way of straight paths of Jesus being experienced. That kind of be the, maybe the natural, well, here we go, let's do that. But remember something, they were living in the world where Christ was not yet known. We are not that world. We live in something called Christendom. It means it's the wallpaper in the room. It's the thing that we go by whether or not we realize it. In the South, it's called like just kind of being born a Baptist, right? Maybe being born Catholic, just kind of just being born into it. It just kind of happens. You just kind of do it. And therefore, like we all just kind of are Christian. That's Christendom. When you don't even think about what's handed to you, you just kind of go with it because it's what your parents did and your grandparents did and your Pappy John or whoever else. Pappy John, where did I get that? That's got to be a Mississippi thing. Anyway, it's the thing that was handed to you and you never even question. That's called Christendom. Now, what do we do in Memphis? How many of you are new to Memphis? Raise your hand. Within like the last, let's say you're two years or younger in Memphis. How many of you? Yeah, a few of you. Have you picked up on something? That there are more churches than gas stations in the city? Have you guys found that out yet? Like, it's true. We did a whole study at Christ City one time. We didn't. But like, there's a lot of churches here. Just take a rock and throw it. Oh, there's one. There's literally another one that meets in this room before us. <laughs> Just drop your rock. Don't even throw it. There are so many churches in the city. There's not even a gas station nearby. There's a church right here and another church right here. So many churches, so much Christendom. Maybe, maybe it's not out there that needs to be critiqued getting in the way of the straight paths of God. Maybe the critique for us is what's in here getting in the, in the way of the straight paths of God. So let's just think about this for a minute.
E. Stanley Jones was a Methodist missionary in India. A lot of you have heard of him. And he developed a relationship with Gandhi. There was an interesting conversation that they were having and that was written about by, by Jones later on. And there's just two parts from the conversation I wanted to pull out. Jones said, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear so adamantly? Why is, why is that you appear to so adamantly reject becoming his follower? And Gandhi said, oh, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. I like Christ. I don't reject Christ. It's just kind of all you Christians that don't really seem to get the whole Christ you talk about. See, the problem isn't the, the corporate money bags on Wall Street. The problem isn't whoever is the POTUS. Or if you're like a Reddit conspiracy theorist, it's not the Illuminati and who holds all power, the 12 people who holds all power around the world. I know that because some of you are in this room. It's us who get in the way. It's us who say that we care about sojourners but support a wall. It's us who say we love all people but emotionally and spiritually persecute the LGBTQ community. It's us who believe all lives matter but aren't willing to stand with those whose lives have been generationally and systematically oppressed because of the color of their skin. It's us who are against death penalties but ignore an unborn baby's rights. It's us who espouse peace but support war. It's us who believe in equal rights but ignore the voices of women who've been emotionally, physically, and professionally abused and mistreated. Us. We're the ones that get in the way, at least in this culture. We're the ones that get in the way of the straight path of God, of Jesus being clearly seen. And I know that's a critique. I don't like it. I'm critiquing myself. I know that's one of the hardest things you'll hear. Stepping into any time, especially 2019. But we have to be willing to critique ourselves if we're going to try to step out and critique a culture and try to offer it better news than what it has. And this is a conviction we have to all be willing to wrestle with and live with. Because you have to wonder, like, no wonder why people take indefinite breaks from church. I've spoken to several people, several of you in this room, who have told me this is your first time back in church in years. You were done with church. And you've tried them all, but you were done. For whatever reason, you're trying to give it a shot again. There's a reason why you had to step away from it. It was a lot. We wonder why people don't want what we're selling because we're not willing to smoke the stuff. That's not a good example to use. All right. It's because we're not, it's we're not using. It's like we're not truly, truly embracing the things that we say that are so important to us that we have to, we can't just talk about sojourners. We can't talk about death. We can't talk about any of these things unless we own it first and say, this matters. There's your New Year's resolution. The New Year's resolution isn't like, let me lose 10 pounds. Although that's important. The New Year's resolution is, let me truly 
live what I keep talking about and not just have an ideology that people go, well, I can find that on Twitter. I can find that in a self-help section at whatever bookstore online. Trust me, people are much less interested in what we know and they're much more interested in how it's working. And that's the challenge for us. So what do we do? What do we do? A couple of things I want us to consider. First is this. What is it about your life that distorts, gets in the way of, and makes crooked God's straight path for others in this world? What is it in your life, personally, that distorts, makes crooked, and gets in the way of, of God's straight paths for this world? Where is there a lack of love, a lack of understanding? And listen, you can still have your views and convictions of anything I just mentioned, but, but what does it mean? What does it mean to actually have some substance to the things we talk about personally? What would that look like for a resolution? What do you need to do more work around, study around, thought around, so that you can interact, not just intellectually, but in an actual real way that people want what it is you have to talk about. And instead of being a person who makes crooked the straight paths of God, what would it look like to just be crooked people that God draws straight lines with? There's an old, um, in your bulletin, an old Portuguese proverb. We don't really know how far back it goes, but it goes something like this. God writes straight with crooked lines. And Ignatius of Leola kind of rephrased it, and he said, God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. Hey, it's okay to not get it right. It's okay to not know. We've, we've practiced, Jamin, when he preached recently, even helped us practice this by all saying together, I don't know. That's a great thing to practice in the mirror in the mornings. I don't know. I may be getting this wrong. I may need help in this area. I may be more crooked here than what I realize. I may not be as loving or as understanding to a sojourner. I may still be very racist or bigoted in different views I have towards fill in the blank. I may be more interested in this person's rights, but then what about an innocent voice like a baby's rights? I don't know. I may be that distorting. And we first own by saying, like, and that's okay. Like, it's not okay, but that's okay. Because God meets us in those crooked places. It's when we are blind to our crooked places that we become stumbling blocks and we make crooked the straight paths of God. Are you with me on that? So what would it mean for us to critique ourselves? And then two, I believe that when we have a gospel that can critique our world and our reality and live it out, it allows us to have a voice and critique the culture around us. What is happening around you that you need to find courage to critique? Where are you really good at just critiquing yourself, but you never step out with any courage to critique the things around you? Friend groups, where you associate, the ideologies that you just kind of keep pumping in. What is that? I don't know what that is, but what is that in your life? Where is it that you actually need to have a voice to be like, hey, this isn't about being American, because, like, 
America isn't Christian. America's America. America has lots of things going on here. What if I learned how to be more Christ-like and was even willing to critique the American culture around me where I needed to? That takes a lot of courage, I know. It's just not the message you want to start out 2019. I know that. I don't want it either. But here's what it means to truly see Christ. It means to just be more than just a bar Jesus, a son of Jesus that takes the powers and ideas of him, but never has the real power of him in our lives. And that's what Paul and Barnabas are critiquing, and that's what we need to be willing to critique as well. And here's the good news. We're about to go to this table. And at this table, you bring the most crooked parts of you and you lay it down right there. And in that moment, when we receive his body and his blood, we remind ourselves that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. Let's pray. So, Father, now we come to you. And we come to this table, and this table represents something more than a memorial. It represents, represents more than a good idea. It represents the power, the power of a God that emptied himself of everything and became human. And this God is Jesus. And through his death of his body and through his blood that he spilt, we now find common ground, all as people who are crooked, all as people who don't have it all together, and yet realize that when we walk out of here, you could use us to draw some straight lines. So we pray that whatever it is we're bringing with us, you would meet us there, alleviate us from the parts that are just toxically shaming, but also push us towards the parts that need some healthy shame and healthy critique, and how do we change to become more of a follower like you? In your name we pray. Amen.